Acts 2, 42-47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to, one, to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Erica. All right. Well, this is part two of our three-part vision series where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a community of Jesus' disciples today? And so can we just pray? Let's just begin, acknowledge the king is in the room. His spirit is present to us. Let's thank him for that. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, And then the Holy Spirit proceeds from your breath. The Holy Spirit, your breath, now covers us. Bring illumination to our minds. May our thoughts be filled with the thoughts of God by the power of the Spirit who's present to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, yeah, last week... We said this, as Jesus' apprentices, you have slide two, I believe, slide two, as Jesus' apprentices, that's disciples, that's what Christians are, we want to see Jesus' vision realized in our time and place, that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in San Diego as it is in heaven. This is what our city longs for. Uh, We long for the healing presence of God at every level in our inside of our souls and in every level of society. We long for his shalom, to use an ancient word, his thick peace to have his way. And so what does this look like here at Park Hill? Here's the language we use, which really it came from, you know, famous Christian philosopher Dallas Willard. His summary of what it looks like to follow Jesus is this. To be apprentices of Jesus is to order our lives around three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do what he did. Like Dallas Willard says, do what Jesus would do if he were you in San Diego in your shoes. And so last week we talked about the first one, being with Jesus. And the entryway of being with Jesus is what? Believing, right? We talked about belief last week. I really think last week was one of the most important teachings we've ever done as a church. We clarified core essential doctrines Like, what is the doctrines and ethics of Christianity? Or in other words, what we believe. And not just our little tribe of Park Hill, not just our little clique or whatever, but the global church of Jesus followers across every nation and two millennia. So if you didn't hear that teaching, I highly recommend you go back to last week and listen. And by the way, I just want to say, never in five years of leading this church have I seen so many of you email for the slides of a teaching, like so many people emailing for like the core essential doctrines in that concentric circle slide that we had. Uh, so, so well done, you guys. The essential stuff, you're, hung, you're hungry for it, apparently, to read it, discuss it with your community and share with other people. So good. I want to say well done. 
Because Jesus invites everyone to believe in him and by believing in him experience what he calls life that is truly life. So this is, this is the call. And, and so, so we enter life with God and one another. We immediately have this family. And it's this family piece that I want to focus on today. Um, because for part two of our vision series, we're talking about what it looks like to uh, become like Jesus. Become like Jesus. And what it looks like is family life. You're going to hear this kind of over and over today that no one becomes, you can't become like Jesus alone exclusively. You can't. Uh, you, come like, you become like Jesus in his family by the power of the Spirit. Jesus has this formation program called disciples, <laughs> discipleship. And so, so we talk about a lot of the things that Jesus wants us to do, like silence and solitude, prayer, you know, scripture reading, preaching the gospel, being with the poor and vulnerable, hospitality, all these things. But all of those things fit in a context. We don't do them in isolation. We do them in a family. The essential location of discipleship, becoming like Jesus, is through commitment to spirit-empowered community. That is how and where we become like Jesus. So I would argue in our current moment, there's nothing our society needs more than this community. Truly spirit-filled and Jesus-shaped. A community that does everything we can to humbly reflect the confidence and contentment and non-anxious spirit of Jesus. Our culture needs to see that. Like what if this moment, after two years of chaos globally, what if this was a starting point for a quiet revival? right? A truly quiet, unstoppable revival where the Holy Spirit turns the world upside down through a non-anxious, present church, right? Where, where fear and, and anger-inducing news headlines don't dictate our tempers because we're intentionally rallied around something higher than the news cycles and more eternal, and don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean our heads are in the sand and we ignore what's going on out there at all. We don't ignore suffering. Actually, the opposite is true. We become more effective and more of a healing presence precisely because we are a community becoming like our, our Prince of Peace together. So you see what I'm saying here? This is what our city and neighbors, friends, kids, everybody around us needs this. It's a renewed sense of hope that flows from a community that's committed to this together thing. Not just discipleship to Jesus, but doing discipleship in a together way, as Dr. Bashir likes to say. We do this in a together way, he says. Um, so this is what we see in the very first church. Erica opened with the reading from Acts 2. You guys, many of you know the story. The Holy Spirit comes on the church, gives birth to church for the first time. Happy birthday, church. And, and, and then Peter preaches the gospel, and the church grows from 120 people to like 3,000 on day one. Huge move of the Spirit. How does the church respond to the Spirit? So the Spirit does all that. What does the church do back? We read it. Uh, the first verb that the church does, is it preaching? Is it singing? Is it giving to the poor? Is it communion? If you notice in that text, that's not the first thing the church does. 
silence and solitude and Sabbath and all of that. It's not the first response. There's one verb that is the church's first response to the Spirit's work. Here it is. And they devoted themselves. Those three words, they devoted themselves, that's one Greek word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. We, how many of you have recognized, you, you're familiar with that verse? Apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, prayer. So when we look at that verse, we normally think of those four nouns. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayer. But th those aren't the actions of the sentence, right? The action is this radical commitment. So, so do you get this? Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He says, now go be my people in the world. And he says, here's my power. Here's my spirit. And the church is like, oh, this is amazing. And the church responds with commitment. That's the res first response of the church. That's significant. And then all through the New Testament, there's this deep priority of commitment for Jesus' followers. Paul says it this way to his um, to the, his church in Ephesus, he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, and then right here, make every effort <laughs> to keep the unity, right? Here's that commitment uh, to eat together and laugh and cry and hurt and heal together. And in his letter to Rome, Paul uses some of the most awkwardly intimate language you can think of <laughs> to describe the kind of commitment that we're supposed to have. Look at Romans 12, 4 and 5. He says, for just as each of us has one body, touch your chest, touch your shoulders, your arms, like the, your body is always self-protecting and you're always out for your own safety. You're, you're very aware of your pain when you hurt. Your body loves itself, right? Or at least should in order to survive. And he's like, so, so for just as each of us have we have one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the rest. That's, that's, that's subconscious till death do us part commitment, right? Literally, like if your body separates, you die. <laughs> right? It's, it's almost like beyond commitment. Like whatever body type you have, you don't even want to think about existing without your body parts. So losing a member of my church family should feel like an injury. Me losing you, you losing me, unthinkable pain, right? It should. And I, I know right now a lot of questions are coming up in your mind like, man, how does that work with like my privacy and codependency and enmeshment and unhealthy levels of all these questions come up which are modern questions and important. But this is the spirit of, can we go back, can we look at the scriptures and just acknowledge, this is the spirit of Christian commitment, complete commitment to God and each other. And, and then when the church did commit like this, what was the result? The church became a lighthouse of hope, right? The, the, turn the world upside down. Here's what that looked like. Again, the passage Erica read. So they devote themselves, see? And, and then verse 43, everyone's filled with awe. And verse 44, all the believers had everything in common. Nothing they had was considered only theirs. That's wild levels of selflessness. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad hearts. 
And look at verse 47. I love this. <laughs> you get both, both of these things, not either or. Look, praising God and enjoying the favor of the city, the people. <laughs> so we can be a worshiping community that aren't seen as jerks. Do you realize this? It's possible. This is what the first church was, a worshiping community that the city was like grateful for. Do you see this? We can be both. This is what hope looks like through the community of the spirit that's committed through thick and thin in a time of detachment and non-commitment. This is what we look like. This is what it looks like when a church is becoming like Jesus. Are you hungry for this? So question, question for reflection. Ask yourself with the Holy Spirit here, if I were to use one phrase to describe my whole life response to Jesus, what would it be? If you were to use one phrase, this is how my life of worship looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like to God. The first church's answer, according to Acts 2, is here's what it looks like, radical commitment to community. Now, I know that, that okay, to, to start answering some of the questions coming up in your minds that I can foresee, uh, this is ideal. <laughs> community is never ideal. It's always just real, right? It's like a mess. So, so radical commitment like the early church or whatever, that's ideal for sure. But it didn't even take long for the early church to drift, right? Three pages later in Acts 5, the church has to start deal with lying and greed in the community, and it's just this messy reality ever since of imperfect, sinful people, which is why the rest of the New Testament, the apostles keep calling the church back to that ideal, sacrificial, spirit-filled commitment, which fuels our hope in hard times, and it shows the world what hope in hard times looks like. You guys, we are God's plan for this. You are God's plan for this. So through our week-in, week-out commitment to the mission, of Jesus, together, we fuel our hope and demonstrate hope. Fuel our hope, demonstrate hope through sticking it out. That's really it. So, um, yeah, everywhere we look, if you're a leader at all, if you're a faculty at a college or, or you oversee a team or anything, there's like this sense, what's next? What's the next phase of re-entry post-COVID or whatever? And I know nobody wants to hear that word anymore, post-COVID. But, but we're still, it's a reality. Like, what does it look like to move into the 2020s and set ourselves up for the 2030s as a society? And there's this sense, like, how can we step into it with courage? And as children of God, we ask, What's, what is God the Spirit leading us into? Whatever the future holds, God's calling us to pre prepare for it through commitment, right? I remember receiving a question on a Q&A panel. Uh, we were traveling, and we are at this retreat, and I was on this panel, and they're like, Evan, uh, what, what kind of persecution? It was like this fearful question. What kind of persecution do you foresee us facing? And I'm like, how can anyone know? Like, I'm not even interested in that question. I'm more interested in the kind of community that will face any persecution. And, and this is that kind. This is that kind. St. Augustine said it like this. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. You guys, this is the hope the world longs for. Angry at injustice 
and stinking doing something about it by the power of the Spirit in intimate communities. So this is the mission of Jesus. So um, here we go. We're, we're about halfway through the teaching now, and I just, I just want to say the rest of this sermon uh, is defining community. <laughs> and and if, if this is the definition, can you do the next slide? If this is the definition of community, we're going to color it in. So community, we define it around here as this. Because it's a buzzword, right? Community, there's like a Netflix TV series about community, isn't there? Called community. But so, so it's a very hip buzzword. Uh, but here's how we define it. Intentional relationships around the way of Jesus. This is what we mean when we say authentic community. Intentional relationships around the way of Jesus. And so, so that's our big picture. For the rest of this teaching, um, I want to give color and shape to that because we don't become like Jesus alone. It's 100% a family project. So, so for the rest of this teachings, uh, for the rest of this teaching, I have like six quick thoughts. Six quick thoughts um, to bring shape to this and to speak maybe a little bit vulnerably from my own life a little bit about how hard this has been. Um, because again, it's never the ideal that we get to, even though we shoot for it, it's the real that we get to and stick with. Um, so I shared these, a version of these six thoughts in 2018 when we were first forming as a church. I don't know how many of you were here in February of 2018, um, but we were like two months into this church being born in San Diego. And, and we are still as committed to these as ever. So here they are, six thoughts. Number one, community is non-optional for discipleship to Jesus, okay? Or in the words of, uh, again, my mentor, Gary Bashirs, he's very blunt, but he's like 75. He can be blunt and ornery, you know? So he says it like this. Community is non-optional for being saved. From the beginning, it's not just me and a personal relation to Jesus, but me joining a community of Jesus followers. I know that's un-American, he said, <laughs> which is awesome. We like our individualism, don't we? That's classic Gary. He's right. As Americans, we love our, our, our private space, our individualism, and, and, and our personal relationship with Jesus or whatever, which is a phrase that's nowhere in the Bible personal relationship with Jesus. It, don't get me wrong, those can all be great, but listen, Jesus did not have a disciple. He never did like a one-on-one -on -one over coffee with anyone. You know this. He had disciples, plural. In the Gospels, it's never just Jesus and Peter. You always read Jesus and Peter, James, and John, or Jesus and the 12, Jesus and the 70, Jesus and the 5,000, right? He always had plural disciples. I don't know how many of you were aware of this, but Park Hill Church was planted and is still being led by a community. For the last five years, our leadership team has been intentionally working toward God's ideal and, and always ending up in the real and having to wade messily through that. Um, it's not easy, huge ups and downs, but there's no other way to follow Jesus, you guys. There's no other way. 100% worth it. So the New Testament uses two metaphors for what it means to be the people of, good, of God. One is disciple, which is apprentice, and the other one is siblings, right? Brothers and sisters, family language. 
So the driving idea in the whole New Testament is that we're a family and God is our father and we're adopted in. And so our problem, again, as modern Western individualists, when we think of ourselves as a child of God, you know, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. When we sing that, you know what I see in my mind because I'm American? You know what I see? I see an only child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. I see myself in the middle or whatever, which is, which is true. I am a child of God, but that's not how the New Testament thinks of children of God. Virtually every single New Testament command is a plural command. Did you know this? Togetherness is just assumed. We miss this. Like we read, be patient, be kind, love your neighbor, but we forget that these were always read they're plural verb commands. Y'all, if you're in the South, you'd use y'all for all of them. Y'all be patient. Y'all be kind. There's almost no individual commands in the New Testament. You're supposed to obey them together. And by the way, we forget these commands were always read in a room full of your neighbors. So when it's like, hey, if you have this problem against your neighbor, make sure you confess. And you're learning this for the first time going, oh, dang, they're right here. This is the way Jesus is followed for the majority of church history, you guys. Um, so, so, so there was no such thing for the majority of history. There was no such thing as like a personal printed Bible in your hands in the woods or whatever. You know this. Uh, there was lots of personal prayer, but the only Bible reading time was public reading and group memorization together, wrestling through the radical implications of these teachings in the moment. Don't get me wrong, it's great that you have your Bibles and all of that, your, your Bible and journal you bought on Amazon, it's really great, uh, but we've pretty much lost the non-optionalness of wrestling through this together in a devoted community. Um, so in 2015, Barna, which is one of the largest, most respected research companies in, in the church, they recently did this big study that asked thousands of questions, this, thousands of Christians this question, and they gave four groups. What's your preferred method of discipleship? Which one would you pick? What's your preferred method of growing as, as a Christian, spiritually, on, on your own with a group, one-on-one, -on -one, or maybe a mixture? I think you know where I'm going with this, but let me show, let me show you how the masses responded. You have that next slide. So the vast majority said, oh, I, I'll take my discipleship a la carte, you know, on my own. And then there's, with a group, one-on-one, -on -one, mix of these. You guys, the preferred method in our context is solo discipleship. Not with a mentor, not with a community, just, just me and my Jesus or whatever. You guys, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's foreign to the world of Scripture. You have to be in deep relationship with others. Don't get me wrong, times of pulling away from the community to intentionally practice together with your community knowing and praying for you as you go, often to a stillness retreat or silent, whatever, that's beautiful, it's essential. But it's all in a context of deep relationship in the story of Jesus. And this is a good thing because number two, the second thought is community is not optional for like healthy human life in general, right? Ask any therapist of any worldview or whatever, you are a relational creature. 
And because we follow Jesus, we turn to page one of the Bible. What do we see on page one of the Bible? Humans are made in the what? In the image of God, and God is a relational being. Father, Son, Spirit in perfect relationship. And we're created in that likeness. And if that teaches us anything, it teaches us we were designed to be, to see ourselves in relation to another. And, and for us, it's, those others are God and others, people. This is why the first human problem in the Bible, what's the first human problem? It's the aloneness of the human, right? Adam, Adam, it just means human. The first human problem, think about it. When God said, it's not good for human to be alone, think about it. Was Adam technically alone? Who did he have with him? The Creator. The Creator, God was with him, but God said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. But, but it was Adam plus God. What is God talking about? God is naming something. God is calling human plus God alone. Do you get that? Human alone with God is human alone, according to God. That's the first problem in the Bible. What does that tell us? Community is non-optional for a flourishing human life, you guys. In Genesis 2, God sees the human and says, it's not good. This aloneness is not going to fly. And listen, marriage is not the only point of that statement. Do you know this? Marriage is, is a big point in Genesis 2 in that chapter, but it's not the only point. Why do we say this? Because we know marriage does not solve human loneliness in itself. It, does, it can't. There are millions of people who report feeling married but lonely. 33% of married people today over 45, according to the AARP, which is, I think, the American Association of Retired Persons, 33% of married people over 45 report, I am Czech, married but lonely. And there are countless others who aren't called to be married, but everyone is called to deep relationship. Everyone. To know and be known deeply in the community of God. So what I'm about to say might be surprising, but listen, marriage... This wasn't taught in church a ton for me growing up, but I believe it's explicit in the scriptures. Marriage is not the ultimate goal of a well-lived human life. It's just not. You can be a fully flourishing human being as an unmarried person. You are not second class. You're every bit as qualified to serve and flourish and bless and contribute to everyone around you as a married person is. How do I know this? Because we follow an unmarried person, right? Jesus, and don't tell me Jesus was missing out on anything. He's fully flourishing. And another unmarried person, Paul, was a great, the greatest interpreter of Jesus, arguably. And so don't tell me for a second Jesus and Paul were missing out on life, right? They're flourishing. Because you and I and Paul and Jesus were born relational souls, whether unmarried or married or extroverted or introverted or whatever you see yourself as. Anagram five, wing seven, even though that's not allowed. I've heard people do that. Whatever you think you are. <laughs> this, is this applies to everyone. Have you ever wondered why if one close relationship in your life is off, you're an emotional wreck. Like that week is just awful. 
And your relationship with God is out of sync. It's because God made this thing to be one big hairball, all of us together. Paul wrote, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And that's healthy. That's healthy. So what happens when you graduate with your bachelor's degree or you, or you do get married or you get that job or whatever and, and do you say, all right, I'm going to go grab a beer by myself to celebrate. It's going to be great. This is what I've always wanted. No, you send out invitations, right? You register for gifts. You call your friends. Or worst case scenario, you point it to Instagram with a fake filter and wait for people to click their happiness at you. Because we, 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 when we celebrate, it's a call to some form of community. The same goes for how we weep and grieve, right? You're suffering loss. Maybe you're suffering loss and grief here, and you reach out to your people. This is what Sandy and I did in, when we suffered the worst moment, the worst loss of our lives in 2020. And, and speaking personally for our family, it was fascinating to notice, just to notice myself, who I brought into my grief. Just paying attention to that, how, who I brought in and how I brought them in. A lot more phone calls, a lot less texts. These are my people. And they responded by setting up meal trains and visiting and calling and taking care. So whether it's rejoicing or mourning, it's always this guttural call for shared presence. Because community is not optional for a healthy, well-lived life. And then number three thought, community is the context we become like Jesus. You guys, this is how we change. This is how we change. My people transform me. Your people transform you. And we, we realize this on the surface, like, you know, you become like the company you keep, that whole thing. Um, whether it's fashion or music or even the language you use, we reflect the company we keep. But at a deeper level, remember our definition of community, remember what it is, intentional relationships around the way of Jesus. At that level, two things happen. Are you ready for this? This could be painful, but it's good. Two things happen when we're with our Jesus people. We are exposed and we're encouraged, both those things. We're not, not, not just one, because one without the other, we go off either deep end and we don't live in reality. Our people bring us into reality. So first of all, that exposing is key. You guys know Pete Scazzaro. We've talked about him a lot here. He's important in the, in the world of spiritual formation. He's helped our team so much, uh, not personally, but through his material. He wrote The Emotionally Healthy Church, he calls, he calls this our shadow side. Y'all have a shadow side, okay? It's this. The accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts, that while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It's the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. And listen, we all have it. The problem is, I'm the last person in the world to see my own. My shadow side is way more visible to everyone else. And the narcissist is the person who doesn't believe anyone else about their shadow side. So I'm blind to it, right? Until I step into deep, honest community. So how this looked for me in 2017, 2018, church planting will do you in or do you stronger. Um, leading something from scratch. It's been beautiful and hard. Um, Right before our Christmas Eve launch, 2017, uh, one of the people on the team at the time, 
he was kind enough to bring some stuff, some junk to my attention about my leadership style and the way my unchecked personality can make it really hard for others on the team who operate differently. To be, to be clear, here was my problem. I thought I was being fun because as an Enneagram 7, fun means meaningful, right? If you're having fun, then, then your, your, your purpose of life is being realized. So, so I thought I was being fun. Everybody, come on, inviting everyone to the table. But in, re- in reality, I was being horribly unclear and not giving people clear lanes to run in. And it was very frustrating for certain people who were more systematic types and very gifted and ready to run in their lane. And, they ex- but, and s- because I didn't give lanes, I'm like, no, let's hold off on lanes. Let's just be together. They experienced me as very dishonest because I said, come and thrive and do your thing. And I didn't give people a space for that. And it was unkind. I would never have known how deeply unkind and unclear I am as a human being if, if I didn't have this, this people, my people, that were allowed to see and know and be seen and known. So thankfully, some people initiated a hard conversation with me, and it led to a bunch of other hard conversations, and then me apologizing and them forgiving and growing together, and it hasn't, it hasn't been all hunky-dory ever since. And, and there are parts of this that are no fun, but it's essential. These no fun parts are essential if I'm going to continue becoming the kind of person Jesus sees me becoming, a person of love. And I would say the same thing for all of you. This is essential for you to become a person of love. Not just to have the people in your own house who maybe you're married to or your parents or siblings, not just to have your bio family speak into your shadow side because you can roll your eyes and go, I know you are, but what am I? But your spirit family, your diverse, generationally, ethnically, experientially diverse spiritual family, united around the way of Jesus, speaking directly to your shadow side out of love. We need this. We need this. It doesn't happen unless you're in it for that. It's way easier to just back away from people when it's hard and be like, I'm just going to get a new friend. <laughs> I'm getting new friends. It's the, in con- dealing with conflict in a social media age, right? Just click unfriend. Um, it's way hard to stay devoted because it exposes you. But remember, the other side, it also encourages you. It exposes and encourage, encourages you. So, so psychologically, ask Greg, our on-staff therapist or whatever, Greg, pastor of community care, or anyone with a background in psychology, the only way to get healing from relational wounds is through relationship. And it's a cycle you don't want to break out of because it hurts and you remember. I'm not saying the same relationship with the same abusers or the same toxic environment, get out of that one, get back into deep relationship in a trusted context. It's the only place to find healing. Our deepest wounds come from relationships and our greatest healing comes from relationships. So the saddest thing in the world is when wounded people, in reaction to excruciating parent wounds or marriage wounds, they wall off from the other relationships in their life because they naturally don't want to get hurt and basically stay broken. Saddest thing, let the house of God be your healing place. If you need help finding a healing place because right now you're getting hurt, please don't wait another day. 
to speak directly to the elders of this church who love your soul and pray for you constantly. Because community is the context, we're changed. We're changed to be more like Jesus. And then thought number four, this one needs to be said. Um, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't come across too snarky. I don't mean it that way. But community is not the same thing as a group of friends. I have to say this these days. So, um, because getting to know tons of you, you know, here at Park Hill, we're reforming after a couple years of chaos. We're coming together beautifully. And there seems to be a lot of you who are like delightful, exciting people, even like extroverted, I would say, <laughs> um, which is amazing to see in a room of mostly strangers. Introverts and extroverts are equally val valid in the kingdom. There's plenty to say about both. And there's a spectrum. But listen, here's, here's, the, here's the thing, the temptation for those of us like me who are extroverted. Yay, I love everyone kind of people, right? Everyone's my friend. Um, we're tempted to think, I'm surrounded by people. Things are awesome. I'm okay. <laughs> I don't need Jesus or whatever. I don't need to get alone in silence. I feel great because I hear noise all around me. So that might be true. That might not be true. Just because you have a lot of people around you may not be a good indicator of what's going on inside your soul. So I mentioned earlier, you guys, Park Hill was planted by a community and it's led by a community. Listen, I don't know if you knew this. I don't think I've ever said this much. When we planted this church, we did not know each other. Like, I didn't know the Persleys from Adam and, and their elders and have been faithful ever since. Uh, when people ask, how did you guys become friends and decide to plant Park Hill Church? I'm like, I, we didn't become friends. <laughs> like we weren't friends first. First, Sandy and I made the decision to plant, and then Matt and Aaliyah personally came along, and Taylor Inman, who I kind of knew from the megachurch we were at, and Jacob Fisher, who I did know better because he was on the music team, but like I didn't know Matt and Aaliyah at all. We announced we're planting, and then, and then Matt and Aaliyah are like, we're signing up to do Jesus' mission with you guys out of obedience to Jesus for the long haul, period. And, and, and then we became friends. <laughs> over the next couple years. That was literally the order. It's not like we were best friends first and decided to be a community. It was Jesus' mission first, and from there we became best friends. And this is actually what we're calling all of you to. We're calling all of these communities at Park Hill, Park Hill communities, to have God's mission at the core, and then friendships flow from there. Not the other way around. That order is key. In American church culture, I don't mean to beat up on America, it's just where we live, and it's helpful to know where we live and where we're located. In this, in this country, Christianity is still kind of normal, kind of. Like, you're not totally weird or in danger if you come out as a Christian, right? So it's easy to just hang out with Christians you like and call that community. But that doesn't mean discipleship, obedience, prayer, transformation is actually happening in those relationships. That makes sense. So can, question, can discipleship happen between friends? Of course, but only when the shared core commitment is actually God's mission, not just hanging out at church and having dinner once a week, right? Jim, there's a guy named Jim McNeish who is a uh, leadership psychologist. He's been helpful to me through, through leading as a pastor through COVID is, was wild. 38% of pastors now want to quit are reconsidering the ministry because of 2020 and 2021. I don't know if you knew that, 38% of pastors. Um, so Jim McNeish, 
he, he, he looks at that, like he looks, who's my community? And he talks about this, and keep this in your mind, he talks about your nine to 16. And he's like, who are your nine to 16? Your people. And Jim McNeish, he's this well-respected leadership psychologist, he's been helping people for 25 years, and he talks about your nine to 16. And his point, you guys, you cannot empathize with more than nine to 16 people at a time. You just can't. I know it breaks your heart if you're like, you know, a really empathetic person. You, you watch a documentary about this or that or whatever, and it's just like, oh, I'm torn up, and I want to give my whole life to this cause. I think I know that person I saw in that documentary now, and I'm like, and, and, and you just feel a piece of yourself being given over. If you're empathetic, this is hard to hear, but it's human reality you cannot truly empathize with more than nine to 16 people at a time. This is fully open, vulnerable, here's my cards on the table, say anything you want deep down to me and I'll say anything I want deep down to you, that kind of thing. Humans need their nine to 16. You can't exceed your nine to 16, but you need your nine to 16. Jesus had nine to 16, specifically 12, right? He had 12, and he, quote, gave himself to them. Do you know who Jesus, literally in John 2, do you know who Jesus did not give himself to? Specifically the crowds. Jesus did not give himself to the crowds, but what did Jesus do for the crowds? He wept with compassion. Wait a minute, compassion and empathy, what's the difference? Listen, where your walls are up, Say anything you want. I'll say anything I want. I'm relaxed in this environment. You have full access to the full me. You see me as the always, you see me as the, um, you, you, don't, you don't see the always happy, makeup, never sad person. No, you see the full me. That's the 9 to 16. But the crowds didn't get that from Jesus. The crowds were not Jesus' people. He invited them to be gods and one another's, but Jesus, he had his twelve. You guys, this was so liberating for me. <laughs> through, through the last two years, this was so liberating. I pray it's liberating for you. I pray you go, oh my gosh, God's calling me into a true, like, measurable family here. As a pastor, I can't empathize with everyone. During 2020, I can't empathize with everyone. If I tried, I, I would die. I did try, and I started dying. I'm not called to be friends with everyone. I can't be. I'm not called to fully feel everyone's pain and joy. I would die. But I am, I am called to fully feel the pain and joy of my 9 to 16. And I can't live without it. So I'm looking out of this room of a couple hundred people. You guys have all of my compassion. You have my prayer. You have my preaching. You have my one-off conversations. You have my measured time. But listen, I'm not always going to get it right. I'm going to say things that maybe frustrate you, but if I'm not your 9 to 16, I think we can extend rational compassion both ways and then get with our 9 to 16 and live our lives for Jesus. This is what we're all called to be. In my 9 to 16, see me on my good days and bad days, the unfiltered Evan. And I need this. I need people who are so close to me that they know firsthand how I really treat Sandy. Right? Nothing against casual friends, but if, if you're like me, don't mistake that big group of friends around you for spiritual health. 
Who are your 9 to 16? And then number five, community is a byproduct of commitment. We've already said this a lot, but I just want to bring back Acts 2 again. They devoted themselves. You guys, we're a paradox because we, be, we long for commitment, but we also keep our options open. Am I right? Like, oh, I might join a Park Hill community, this basics course, but, it, but, but am I going to find my people, my kind of people, which is saying what's in it? In a way, that's saying I want to make sure that I get what's in it for me. Or how will this people make me look or feel or whatever? So we hold out. What if there's someone better? What if there's a community that's cooler? Well, that's kind of cool. What if there's a better one? I don't know all my options yet. We're keep our options open culture. Where commitment is often like a last resort. I don't have any other options, so I guess I'll commit. So a friend of mine who planted a church in Australia, he tells a story from one of his early church plant Sundays. And this girl, this, this, this girl shows up to a Sunday gathering, no history in church, no history following Jesus. And she's like, that was a great service. I have one question. And Mark's like ready for some big theology question, some big question driven by secularism or, or sexual identity politics or something. He's like, I'm ready. Let's go. I'm going to be the most loving, literate pastor. And then her question's like, are you guys really going to do this again in a week? And he's like, oh, yeah, we, we are. Gathering rhythms is central to following Jesus or whatever, like, yeah. And stunned, she simply was like, how do you know you won't have something else happening? <laughs> how do you know you'll be around? How do you do this church if you... This is, the, this is the ethos of the day, you guys. We don't commit. We keep as much as possible at arm's length. And the reality is we can't have community without commitment. So... We commit to people and we commit to a place and this place, this commitment to place, I just want to encourage this. Uh, I realize this cuts against the grain of SoCal culture. I mean, this placelessness is built into San Diego's culture. We like to stay mobile. Um, whether, whether you came into the city for military or whatever else, people move here, don't really settle. They live in an apartment, rent to lease, move every 6 to 12 months, work a great job, eat and drink their way through the city, and then move on, right? Um, so if that's you, you're welcome here. So glad you're here. Chances are that's probably most of us in some ways. Uh, whether you're here for college or whatever, it's a temporary thing in your brain. And community will obviously look different in different phases of life. But here, I just want to do the friendly neighborhood pastor thing. So as your friendly neighborhood pastor, let me take a moment to call you to pray about committing to San Diego and a Park Hill community for twice as long as you think. So if you're here for a two-year nursing residency, consider committing to four years for the mission of Jesus. Or if you're here for a four-year degree program, consider eight years for the mission of Jesus to San Diego. He has one. You get the idea, twice as long as you think. The point is, we need to make our career, we tend to make our career primary and community secondary. I'm challenging us to swap that. Make the mission of Jesus and the community on that mission primary for you and then build your life around that. That's what I'm challenging you to do. And my goodness, this grates against our knuckles like a cheese grater. And I get that, but there's something about the beauty of rootedness that's central to Jesus' call. 
It's what St. Benedict 1,600 years ago called the gift of stability. His definition of stability is the spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. I invite all of you to stability, dependability, commitment, and rootedness. As we walk through the book of Revelation this fall, be preparing your hearts. What does it look like to see the revelation of Jesus and respond together in a rooted way? And then finally, last thought, community takes time and intentionality. It's hard to meet people and, and then do this thing from scratch together. Trust me, we did that. It's hard. We've been doing communities here at church for like just over four years. And next Sunday, August 21st, is the onboarding. It's basics. And we welcome new members and we raise up new leaders. If you're considering leading, now is the time to make at least your presence known. I would love to lead sometime. Maybe I'm not ready this month, but maybe in January. Just make your presence known. Introduce yourself to Aaliyah Persley, our pastor of community formation. We need leaders. We need leaders. Um, so in one thing we're still discovering four years into building here, it just takes time. It takes time to know someone from scratch. Give yourself grace. Be gentle with yourself. Be gentle with others. It won't just happen. One writer said, creating this kind of community requires us to ritualize the commitment. Like, ritualize it. I love that. Make it a non-negotiable rhythm. So as we come to the table now, um, we're going to start as a community eating the meal of Jesus. So if you could stand. This is how we become like Jesus. So wherever you're at, you guys, wherever you're at with Jesus, let me encourage you, lean in, reach out to people, open arms, open hearts. We're not just inviting you to come to a Christian event on a Sunday, even though we're so happy you're here. But for us, this Sunday thing is just the beginning. Remember the first Christians met in the temple and house to house. That's what we do too. So who's your 9 to 16? How can we help you open your life in that community in the name of Jesus?